This podcast is brought to you by Rototo. Experience intense space survival action in this mobile retro arcade game. A rotating shield is the only thing standing between the incoming alien horde and your inevitable destruction. How long can you last? Play now on iOS and Android. Just a quick point of order. Next week, we're likely to not have an episode. We are traveling to Denver for our summer summit, and we want to give our producer Tom uh, a break from having to produce episodes so that he can enjoy the activities and socializing that we have planned there. But we'll get to record some super fun in-person episodes. Yes. So there'll be more coming your way. We just won't be here next week. Are we going to do the... Um, and maybe we will actually sneak that 10-minute <laughs> episode mini, in. Yeah, because we, we have a conversation that we cut from last week's that we were thinking we might just release next week. Yeah. I think we're going to do that. Okay. Then, if we do that, then cool. And if not, then we didn't actually lie to you because we're not sure. But we might. <laughs> How's it going? Good. Nope. We're not recording. Hang on. We can't say anything because we're not recording yet. We can't say anything? No. Not even saying that we can't say anything? That is saying something by, by the strictest definition. Are we recording? Yes. Oh, cool. I have like a progress <laughs> thing over here. I don't ever see that. Oh. I kind of like it. No. Okay. Can you not see me yet? <laughs> No, I can see you. I just have like a a thing from Logic telling me how long I've been recording for. Ah, uh, gotcha. Um, Is my audio good? Do I sound okay? You know, you sound okay for you. Oh. <laughs> Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. Um, uh, you know what? I want to go first. Hi, Derek. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Let's do that again. Hang on. I'm ready now. Try. All right. <laughs> <It> means, <laughs> threw me off my game. That's like when we reversed the outro. Okay, go ahead. Hi, Derek. Hi, Sean. That was weird. <laughs> I don't know if I like that. Uh, anyway, I have some follow-up from our last episode, which was just a week ago uh, on TurboLinks. Uh, we were talking about why you would need to make multiple connections in order to speed things up, and at no point did we ever say latency, which is really what we're trying to overcome. Right. I did look into it, and HTTP2 does specifically encourage you put putting everything back on the same server and serving it over a single connection, because that connection gets thoroughly reused. And some web browsers are going to end up, even though you're saying make six connections, they're going to end up multiplexing those back into a single TCP connection on the back end anyway. Okay. That'll be fine. Sometimes. That'd be okay, because then, then you'd be like HTTP 1.1 and 2.0 compliant at the same time. I was just looking into some of the HTTP2 stuff, like I was filling up my Instapaper account with a bunch of HTTP2 links, because it feels like that's coming along faster than I had anticipated it coming along. Like, I know yeah. br browser vendors are, like, working on it. Uh, I think iOS 9 is going to have HTTP2 support for, for Safari. I mean, like for that. the most part, HTTP2 doesn't affect users. Uh, the only feature that would actually, like, affect users directly is server push. Um, and even then, the most common case is just going to be handled by the framework for you, which is just serving your assets as separate files. Speed, man. Speed. That's going to impact the user. It'll be faster. Right? Well, no, the user being you. As the developer? Yeah. The user right. of, of right. Rack and Rails. Right. I wonder how that Rack rewrite is coming. Because when we talked to Aaron, he didn't sound super optimistic about it. Yeah. It's, um... <laughs> it's an entire... Again, right, it's a it's... huge paradigm shift for Rack, so... Yeah. Well, and 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 that that gets into the heart of like what is wrong with rack which I actually gave a conference talk about this. I was focusing on action controller, but the same is actually true of rack as well, which is just that this whole thing's been developed assuming single synchronous 
request response. Right. Which, even if you are just doing a single request response, um, like the fact that's assumed to be synchronous and single-threaded can actually lead to pain in develop in as a developer if you want to have some concurrency in your code. Right. Yeah, it's, um, it's going to be interesting to see this all evolve. <laughs> I do think it's going to be a lot slower than, say, like Apache is ready and the browsers are ready. And I think Rails and Rack are going to be lagging behind. Yes and no. I mean, like, ready in that we support the protocol and get some of the benefits off of it, like reusing a, con- a single connection and compressing the headers and using binary instead of plain text. All of that we can just do in Rack 1, and that's not too bad. Okay, that's good. I'm looking forward to our new HTTP2 overlords. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it'll be good. Uh, and the other thing we never mentioned is like we were like, why would you limit browser connections to the server? And the obvious answer is because browser connections are not free to the server. Right. Um, you don't so, want to accidentally DDoS it. Right. <laughs> so or that's why DDoS they... it, not distributed. Right, just one. <laughs> thousands of connections. Should right. be able to handle that. But still, uh, I've had many clients opening thousands of connections or whatever. Um, so that's why browsers put in per host and per and overall limits. That's all I had for follow-up. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so video encoding kind of sucks. <laughs> I'm just hearkening back to my days of like trying to transcode video. That's, all, that's my um, basis for this. Yeah. <laughs> no, so it's interesting because I specifically have the need to... I'm rendering some stuff with OpenGL, and now I need to record that to a video. Yep. And what's interesting is that while that doesn't seem to be a common thing for people to want to do... The reverse of it is very common. So there, it's very common for people to want to take a video and then render some stuff on top of it with OpenGL as the video is playing back, which makes searching for anything related to what I'm doing really, really difficult because <laughs> they're so like this, the, the, the search, search terms, query yeah. would be almost exactly the same. I'm finally I'm, I'm making some good progress finally with uh, lib, lib FFmpeg, which bundles specifically uh, lib AV codec is where almost all of the work happens. I'm very, I'm very much familiar with libffmpeg from my days of entirely legally downloading things from <laughs> entirely legal sources and needing to convert it. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know how, like, what the correct codec to use is. Yeah. It's just I mean, a guess. It, it's how do you even choose, and then how do I actually decide to rank them? And when I finally was like, okay, it looks like H.264 is pretty good and is supported, for whatever reason, while it is supported... And I compiled everything with a version of Android that should have everything there. And the website, or in the Android developer docs say it's there. LibAV Codec can't find it. Although the docs do specifically say H.264 AVC, which I'm presuming is just short for audio video codec. Some, but I don't know, maybe AVC is different. So now I'm falling back to H.263. <laughs> I've um, never even heard of such a thing. H.263, Okay. It's the older version of H.264. There's also an H.261, although I cannot find any reference to H.262. Hmm. Or 60 might, or... Or 60 or anything like that. Although it's on the way of when... Yeah, uh, MPEG-2 type thing where it's like, and the next one's audio for no reason. It's gone the way of um, Windows 9. will never see it. Just yep. stepped over it. It's got really good support by, uh, for PHP 6 or from PHP 6. You can, only, you can only run it if uh, the browser supports uh, ES4. Okay. What are, you, what are we talking about here? H.263? H.262. 
Because they skipped PHP six and the next version is PHP seven. Oh, okay, you're explaining you're explaining the joke for me now. Okay, got it. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and we never had ES four either. Right. Okay. But all of that runs on Windows nine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now that that joke is fully explained. No, but it's interesting. So like, one of the things in just all of my R in all of my boilerplate kind of setup code, um, I'm doing a lot of things which return a pointer and can fail. So if any of if like at any every single step I have to check for errors, and if any step returned an error, I always want to run this function to kind of reset everything to a clean state and return false. Hmm. And it was just this code looked so structurally duplicated when I wrote it. It was just like this arrow codec equals av find encoder or whatever. Uh, if co- this codec equals equals null, reset, return false, and then. Next thing was this uh, context equals av allocate context three. Uh, <laughs> if that is null, reset, return false over and over and over again. And so I'm just like, this looks like a thing that I should be ex- extracting, but I'm not really sure if there's right. a good way to uh, abstract that duplication. And so I so went what to the C channel. What you wanted real quick was you have a string of commands you want to do, basically. Mm-hmm. And if any one of them along the way encounters a null, you want to bail out and reset false or reset. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of them that don't return a pointer and instead return an error code. In that right. case, if the error, co- error code is non-zero. Right. So some sort of way to detect if that thing was successful. And then if it was, bail out of the entire chain right. and reset. And this is in C, so it's not like I can just use a maybe monad for this. <laughs> right. Anyway, so I, I went to the C channel. I'm like, hey, is there just any like idiomatic way to get rid of this duplication? And the answer, which makes sense now, is go to. <laughs> And it, like the code's actually better with a go-to. Right, yeah. And it looks really nice because now it's just instead of if this do these two things and then that means I have to do new lines and curly braces and all of that, I can just have it one line if failure condition go to fail. Right. And that's pretty cool. But one thing I, 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 that I keep running into over and over again and I never learn is that if you have a declared variable but you have not assigned a value to it, the value of that variable is undefined. Okay. Um, however, in most development contexts, most compilers will zero out the memory. But unless you use demoloc, it's not guaranteed to be zeroed. And so then when I actually compile it for the device, it goes to just some random uninitialized memory, which is very annoying because then I write my code like, oh, yeah, I haven't said anything here, so this is going to be null. And then I do if this, if this thing is null or is not null, do stuff that assumes that that thing has like valid stuff in it. And... All of a sudden, my code starts segfaulting, and the stack trace didn't even show my code. It was just libav codec is doing something, presumably in another thread. Um, and it was because this pointer, which I had not, uh, I failed the step above where I assigned the, the context pointer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in my reset function, I'm like, if the context pointer is, is not null, close the context, free that memory, and then set it to null. And it wasn't null, but it was a random just some random uninitial, uh, uninitialized bits of memory, which as a pointer then may or may not have been pointing to memory that is that I have access to. And if it was, then that data is going to be completely random. Well, that sounds really dangerous. Yeah, and so then the program segfaults. Right. Uh, I mean, yes, and there's other even more dangerous things it can do. Segfaulting, there's actually your best case scenario. Right, like what if it happened to point at something that held some other piece of data that you weren't supposed to have access to? Right. Or It was like, still inside your program space, so it didn't... Or if the cleanup code was was to delete a file, right. and the name is stored on that, and right. then like the random bits somehow pointed at like slash user, <laughs> right? 
Right. But it, it just reminded me of this interesting discussion I was reading through a couple of weeks ago about whether or not... So R- Rust has the unsafe keyword, right? Mm-hmm. And there's actually, like... It's it's funny because there's very specifically defined semantics, but like not specifically defined where they apply. So the only thing that un- unsafe does is you can have it um, as like a random block, uh, a random like bit of code that is unsafe, or you can declare a function as unsafe. And the only thing declaring a function as unsafe does is says this can only be called inside of other unsafe code. But you can just do that anywhere. And if you wanted to, you could have a function that is declared as safe, but then the entire body of it is unsafe, right? And that's because unsafe isn't necessarily about compiler, the compiler enforcing anything. In fact, it's more saying the compiler can't enforce things. And it's saying, like, if you're inside of, if a function's marked as unsafe, it's saying when you call this, the compiler's not going to guarantee that you're doing the right thing. So you better make sure that you're guaranteeing the contract is upheld. And when you have unsafe, an unsafe block in your code, you're saying, I have manually verified that this contract is upheld. And the only thing in Rust that is automatically unsafe is any foreign function. Right. Because the compiler can't guarantee anything about that. Mm-hmm. And so there's an interesting discussion about whether as a guideline it should be impossible to access uninitialized memory in safe Rust. And this was specifically because of some benchmark... I don't remember what it was doing, but ultimately it was going to construct a slice, which is um, basically the equivalent of an array in uh, C. Mm-hmm. But because it couldn't construct all of the values like all at once, it needed to get the slice and assign each value iteratively. And that meant that the memory was going to get zeroed out. And this uh, caused major performance problems. I think it was like in something with file I.O. because uh, you take in a slice and that just always is going to end up being zeroed. Okay. Um, and that causes like a, a 30% performance regression over if that was uninitialized. And so there were just lots of discussions about, A, should uninitialized memory be allowed in safe Rust? And then, B, if, if the answer to that is no, like, is there some interface that we can come up with that allows you to do performant file I.O. without unsafe code, but not have to zero out the memory? But the spe- one of the specific examples of why unsafe memory is dangerous, or uninitialized memory is dangerous, uh, it's basically it's it's basically the same thing as what was happening in my C code, which is why it just reminded me of this, right? So I was running what was essentially a destructor function for this va- for this value, and and the value was just random bits of memory, and that can lead to bad things, right? And in Rust, when a, va- a variable goes out of scope, its destructor gets run, and that's normally not even a big deal because in safe Rust, you very rarely, if ever, define a destructor, and if you do, it's probably a pretty uninteresting one. But, you know, things like socket and file and stuff like that, which do things like close a file handle or close a socket, have destructors. And if the value in that variable when it goes out of scope is uninitialized memory, then that's going to have random behavior, right? Because uninitialized memory can very easily break things that are supposed to be guaranteed in variance of some some class. And one of the interesting examples from, like, how to properly write unsafe Rust was, like, if you're constructing a vector and you need to skip the cost of zeroing memory in the, in the unsafe Rust book. And the issue there is when the vector goes out of scope, it will drop all of its elements, right? And so a vector has a pointer to a, block of, a blob of memory, it has a capacity, which says how many, how many elements can fit in that block of memory, and then it has a size, which says how many, how many slots of that are actually being used up, and when the size tries to grow beyond the capacity, it needs to regrow, which means allocating more memory and copying all the elements over. 
And so preferably you would like to just avoid having to iterate the size pointer over and over and over again. That's actually really the, uh, the only safe thing you can do is to iterate that size pointer over and over and over again. Or I don't remember what the other option was, but there was another option where like, you set the size pointer once, but, oh, or you zero out the memory beforehand. Right. And both of those have a performance hit, though. And there's no good answer. But the reason that's important to do that when you're constructing this thing is because if any code panics midway through, and so the specific example is like you're sticking all these elements in there and you're having to call the clone function on them because the vector is going to take ownership. And if clone were to panic, then it's going to try and drop everything you've assigned in there. Uh, and so if you're telling it its size is greater than the actual memory you've assigned, then that can have completely undefined behavior. And then that gets into the whole... Like, do we actually need a way? Because Rust is supposed to have crash-only exceptions. Because panic is basically an exception, mm-hmm. but you just can't catch you, you can't catch it if something panics. Your program crashes. Right. But it does unwind the stack as it's going to crash, um, and so then it runs destructors and all of that. Uh, and so then that gets into like, do we need a way to catch those, or at the very least, have like the equivalent of a finally block? Hmm. Anyway, it was just in, it, like all of it was just so funny. I'm, ever since I've been doing more and more Rust, I've been seeing so many parallels between like bugs I continuously run into in C and C++ and and I'm like oh and this is a thing that specifically is like a concern in Rust a concern being like things that that people who write unsafe Rust try very very hard to make sure that you never have to worry about it in safe Rust right and so there's like the the problem you were running into with the zeroing out the memory or not zeroing out the memory is kind of like it sounds like today what Rust does is zero out the memory but that it's paying a performance penalty for it Right, and then if you, and then basically you have to write, you have to do very specific, careful things if you're trying to not zero out the memory. Right, because iterating the iterating the size pointer on a vector continuously is way, way, way cheaper than uh, zeroing out the memory beforehand. What do you mean by iterating the size pointer iteratively? So, like, if so, presumably what you're doing is you're saying like I'm going to create a vector of 100 elements, mm-hmm. and then you're going to be like going through a loop and like here's element zero and then here's element one and then here's element two, mm-hmm. and so what uh, you would do is once you once you've assigned the element, you bump the size pointer to or the size to one, and then mm-hmm. you bump it to two, even though you know ahead of time that it's going to ultimately be 100. Oh, right. And of course, you would have set the capacity to 100 and allocated the memory all at once, and but specifically then grabbed uninitialized memory. But you do still have to increment that the size 100 times there. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. It was just like a thing that's been continuously bugging me. And it's cool that as you're like doing more and more Rust, you're like finding things or doing more and more development in general. You're finding things from Rust that you wish you could do or that you could do better if you were doing this in Rust. I think that's like a good sign of something new that you're picking up that kind of has legs, at least for you, right? It's like, <laughs> well, it's if just you it, find it, yourself like if you're starting to pick up, you know, if you're just learning Ruby and you're coming from Java and you go back and you write Java and you're like, oh, in Ruby, I could just do it this way. Right, that's probably a good sign that you're enjoying yeah. whatever you're doing in Ruby, and that's kind of the same way for I feel like what you're experiencing when you're going back to writing C. Is there a reason well, you're not just writing this in Rust? Uh, so I actually have a branch where I ported the entire thing into Rust, and the act of porting it to Rust helped me find a dangling pointer issue. Uh, right, like that I was having a really hard time tracking down. Yeah, we talked about that. But I've never I've never opened the pull request for it, and I don't think I'm going to, uh, just because at this stage I don't think it is responsible for us to give a Rust code base to a client. Hmm. Unless they already have a Rust developer on staff. Do they already have a C developer on staff? No. 
but they're a lot more likely to find a C, a C or C++ developer than they are a Rust developer. Yeah, the, I had these kind of conversations with Pat as well about Haskell when because because we've tried to look to see if there's like a fit with somebody a client that we can do a Haskell project with, right? Right. And my counter there was like, well, at the end of this, we have to give them something. If we give them a Haskell project, like it's going to be harder for them to find a developer to take this over and write Haskell for them. Whereas if we just wrote it in Ruby, you know, they can find a lot more developers that are capable of doing that. But the counter to that is also really interesting, which is basically just that there are Haskell programmers, and I assume Rust programmers, who right. would love to get paid to write and, Haskell or Rust all day, right? Right, and, and they would actually probably have a better pool of developers. Exactly. Right? But, but this is a client in particular where they probably don't actually need a full-time developer. And right. if uh, once we hand it off and, we're, and our engagement with them ends, if anything else happens with it, it'll probably end up going to another consultancy or contractor of some kind. Right. And that's a little bit more dodgy, I think, than if they were hiring a full-time developer. If they were going to hire a full-time developer and it wasn't like, and if, if it was the exact situation where it's like they're going to hire a full-time developer to maintain this and they don't already have a C developer, I would actually probably merge in the Rust port. But um, in this situation, because it'll probably end up going to a game studio if they need to do more interesting stuff with it in the future. Mm-hmm. And right. that's all going to be C++ or C Sharp. Yeah, but they probably have people in there that are like, I don't know. I, I think it could Maybe. go either way. They have people that are also into programming and aware of things that Rust could give them if they had a chance to write it, right? But like, I don't know. I can see arguments both ways that like if you use a newer programming language or a programming language that doesn't have as much commercial appeal currently, your pool is smaller, but it may also be that your pool is better, right? I would say the pool is definitely better. Yeah, the overall quality, the the average quality, I guess, or median quality yeah. of the pool is going to be much higher. It's going to be a smaller pool. And right. if it is sufficiently new or non-commercial, a good number of them will be willing to consider being paid to do this, right? So, right. I mean, I, I would say at this point in a language's lifetime, it's all, it's just, uh, it's always going to be higher quality developers who are doing it because there's not a lot of tutorials out there. There's not a lot of libraries out there. And like, there's a good chance if you're trying to do something that isn't the one thing everybody is trying to do with the language right now or isn't something specifically applicable to building an HTML uh, rendering engine. <laughs> then you're prob- there's a very good chance you're going to end up having to write the library yourself in Rust right now. And that takes a certain kind of developer, right? Right. You're in the big blue ocean at that point. Like, yeah. nobody is around you. <laughs> you and if something goes wrong this. or you can't figure something out, there's no stack. There's probably there's very less likely to be a stack overflow question, right? right. You're going to pop into IRC and <laughs> ask, like, the people who make the language. Right. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's a bug in the language. Or we didn't consider this use case or, you know, whatever the case happens to be. That one actually, I think, happens way more in Ruby than it does in Rust. What, that we didn't consider this use case? Or the it's a bug in, a li- in the language. Uh, yeah, maybe. Like, everything is really, really thoughtful in how Rust actually develops everything. And, they've been, and that's why they have the very explicit R- RFC process, which is actually a pretty lengthy process. And then they also are very conservative about what goes into the language um, and it, it always opt to... If we can, rather than have this in the language, instead make the language extensible enough that a library can do this and then have a library that's just out there but is maintained by the core team, right? that's better. Yeah, I mean, I guess I go back and forth on that. Is From my days as a C-sharp developer, having an enormous standard library is pretty nice, right? Like, <laughs> There's no picking between, like, am I going to use this or this? You're like, eh, it's in the standard library. Just use it. Unless you are very strict about stability. Mm, how so? Explain more. So right now, 
there hasn't even there's just now barely starting to be a discussion about how to make breaking changes in Rust. Okay. Um, but like that hasn't even been discussed up until now because it's just when something's marked as stable, it doesn't change. Now, of course, you can't do that till the end of time, and that's one of the things that they want to talk that they've been talking about is how to provide stability without stagnation. But the idea being that if if something is marked in, as stable in Rust there should basically be no reason that it will ever have any breaking changes. I mean, I I feel like that's true of, well, maybe not in Ruby, uh, but like C-sharp is the example I keep coming back to is like those were stable. And when they weren't, like even when new versions of C-sharp came out, you were still perfectly capable of targeting older versions of the of the CLR. You should never have to if you're like that's what they're saying with Rust is if you if it is if your code works on Rust 1.0 it should continue to work on future versions of Rust until they go to 2.0 which is not a thing that I think is going to be happening anytime in the in the near future and that's why they even have um, a, a hard rule I don't remember the exact I think it might be three versions but like any new feature must be marked as unstable for a certain number of versions mm-hmm. no matter what and then even even if it's marked as unstable. They deprecate it rather than just remove it flat out, and then it's once it's deprecated, it sits around for a few versions. But then if you, and then that means that, and of course, presumably if something's maintained by the Rust core team, they'll have it'll be probably a little bit more stable than random library X. But a library doesn't necessarily have to adhere to those same concerns. Right, but if you're what you're doing is trading a large standard library that may change and may have breaking changes. And I don't actually know what the break, what the status of like breaking changes are in C sharp, but you, you're trading like a large standard library. I mean, Java would be another language that has a large standard library, right? Right, and well, and Java stagnates really bad. Right, and that's that's the that's yeah, it stagnates really bad. So what you can do is like have a smaller standard library, and then have these external libraries that provide very common functions that a lot of people are going to need that can make breaking changes a little more liberally. But at that point, what's the difference, right? If everybody's going to be using these officially supported libraries anyway, what's the difference between your standard library and these libraries? Because you know exactly where the line is. And right. if you want to have both stability in the parts that are really important, but not have stagnation in the parts that are a little less important, right? Then if you just have that all in the standard library, then the line as to like what might change and what might not change becomes really, really, really blurry. Whereas this makes it very explicit. And then there's a thing that I don't remember how new it is. It's semi-new called Standard X, which is just a crate that um, I think one of the Rust core team maintains, and it's just the curated like stuff that you might expect to be in the standard library but isn't <laughs> and here is just like the stuff we left out it's the active support of rust is what you're telling me they call of. it the batteries the missing batteries <laughs> but so like as a, as an example which i found very interesting of something that rust does not have in the standard library the ability to generate a random number okay interesting there's an official rust lang crate called brand why is there no ability to generate a random number that seems pretty like i want this When's the last time you actually needed to generate a random number in one of your projects? Um, Other than like a test runner. I mean, I'm totally just... I use secure random a decent amount in my Rails projects, right? Oh, yeah, for generating a... uh, A token. A uh, token, yeah. Right. But then let's see, and that's something very different. But at the heart, there's probably a random number generator, no? Right, but it's not going to be using kernel.rand under the hood. Okay. That's not secure. Right. (laughs) Um, I don't know, like somebody made an interesting point of why should something be in the standard library? And I actually kind of agreed with it when they, when they went through the whole point, which was that uh, the standard library are things that like the language is specifically worse off if there's multiple competing ways of doing the same thing. So 
things like the option type. Mm-hmm. Right? Like everybody just needs to agree this is how you represent a thing that might not be there because um, that's going to cross library boundaries. Right. How to go about generating a random number? Eh. Like, yeah, it's, it's good if there's just like a, uh, this is, yeah, if you want to generate a random number, go grab the rand crate. That's how you generate a random number. But does it really need to be like the thing that's universal? And if you, and because when something's in the language or in the standard library itself, right, a competing implementation will never gain traction. And so if that random crate is insecure, it becomes a lot harder than for the more niche stuff like a secure, more secure random number generator or a less secure but faster, whatever other var- random numbers are a terrible example for this, but <laughs> JSON parsing. Right. Like it's very unlikely that you're actually going to need an object from a JSON parser and have that cross library boundaries. You're probably just going to be serializing, deserializing some custom data structure. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I like that argument. I'm going along with that. I was trying to come up with the example. I know there's something in Java. I believe it's, uh, and Damien, my Java friend, is going to listen to this at some point and tell me I got it wrong. But I believe it is like how time, how date times are handled in Java or something like that. People oh, there's didn't, so many different. <laughs> people didn't like it, and they're finally building up the like they built up these several different like different other ways that are also in the standard library or in the J2EE or whatever it and is. Nobody uses any of them. They right. just use Jota time because Jota time is way better. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I think this is Jota time is something that I feel like I've I've heard before. But I felt I I feel like he was telling me recently that like in Java, let's see nine is that what is coming on the horizon? Yes, they're moving towards something like that. But I, I'm not sure. Maybe sure. I'm making that up. I'm speaking. But no, out, but. no. And then, but it's going to be the exact same thing as everything else in Java. It's right. going to be a new library, and the old one's just there. And sometimes right. they they don't even deprecate it. <laughs> right. And then you get into like, um, right, so that there's a reason why that when I was going through just random functions earlier, the function I was calling was, uh, was av allocate, allocate context three. Right. <laughs> there's also an allocate context two and also an allocate context one. Sure. And like, or if you look at the function, which is core, to, I remember seeing in a stack overflow is like one of the core functions to the actual video encoding. And they're like, go check out the documentation for AV codec encode video. And it's there. And the font choice in their documentation was actually really poor because um, I, I almost, I read through the entire documentation of this method before I spotted it. At the top is a little label deprecated, use AV codec encode video two instead. Right. <laughs> yeah, I I remember running into that in Java as well, where I would use something, not get any sort of deprecation notices, and then have somebody review the code and be like, oh, you shouldn't use that. You should use this other thing, which is the right. new thing. Be like, well, how am I supposed to know that? This It's so large, right? And like, I can't possibly know everything that's in it. And like, Or my, my favorite that Java has, deprecated since API version 1. <laughs> has been deprecated since the release of the language, but they haven't removed it ever. Like, when I first started doing Java, I was in college and I got Java 1.2, which would be, I guess, Java 2 is what yeah. you call that. Uh, so I got the O'Reilly, like Java in a nutshell book, and it had like the entire library documented in the back of it. And it was, you know, 400 pages, 300, 400 pages. And I felt like that was approachable. I wonder how big that book is now or if they even bother doing that anymore. But I'm going to look that up, see if they still have Java in a nutshell. I mean, they haven't added that much. Like, they add stuff to the language, but they don't really add that much, you know? Yeah, I guess so. Maybe, I mean, I should, I, I have to clarify that, like, my Java experience is now, like, probably, like, a decade out of date. And I did write some Java in the last, like, three or four years, but that was mostly just, like, I need to dive into this Java to get the service to return something different. <laughs> and then I was messing around in, in JavaScript on the front end. 
Well, and you know, and there's actually a, that's actually a good example too, because one of the things so Rust doesn't have um, a library for like doing a lot of time based operations, but one of the things that is in the standard library is the concrete representation of a point in time and a duration. Right. And then doing more if you want to do more complex or interesting things to those, then there's libraries for that. Or yeah. if you need a calendar, a calendar, uh, you know, something that actually specifically stores it as calendar dates instead of as a Unix timestamp. Right. So those would be li- like the, the calendar date would be a library, library function. Yeah. Okay. But like having a concrete representation of a point in time is a common enough thing that does need to be shared across libraries. And unless you want to establish the convention that everything passes around a 32-bit integer rep- uh, representing Unix timestamp, which then means we're going to have to go fix everything written in Rust in 2037. So is there no strif time <laughs> in Rust then? Like I don't know. Can't... Google it. <laughs> I think there is. Yeah, it looks like there is. Uh, well, oh, no, this no, is a crate. This, this is, is in a crate. This is a time crate, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, a, it's an, an official Rustlang. In, it shows up on doc.rustlang.org, and it's maintained by the Rust core team, but it's not in the standard library. Okay, so that's an example of something that we like we were just talking about like here is a concrete example rather than the random thing we were throwing out of uh, functionality that seems like of course it's going to have something like this but in reality they just have the underlying concepts that's necessary to build something like this and then they try to officially support a library that does it right well and again right that's not a thing where you need like everybody needs to agree a not everybody needs that and Mm -hmm. b not everybody needs to agree how to do that and that's one of the other things that you need to consider too when you're talking about uh compiled languages is unless the language has a runtime like java the runtime must be installed on the target system but if you have if you have a self-contained binary everything in the standard library is there right of course of course a lot of that can be stripped out by the compiler and whatnot but yeah the other thing i'm thinking that kind of makes me gives me a little pause about this is as you start building libraries that do more like higher level abstractions right you're going to have libraries that depend on other libraries right Mm-hmm. And depending on another library is far less stable than depending on core, on the standard library. Right. So if in this time example, right, somebody comes along and finds another great way to represent times as strings, and they write their own competition to this time library. I mean, I guess at that point, you're kind of realizing that you're going to play second fiddle because there's an officially supported thing that's already doing this. Like My concern is if I depend on that third-party library now, rather than this first party library you know i've already limited i've limited the audience because there might be people already using this time thing right well but again that and that's the thing right and that's probably fine because this isn't necessarily returning types that need to cross library boundaries yeah that's true they don't have like common dependencies that need to be resolved together and things like right that. well and I, I i could be very very wrong on this but i believe rust has node style transitive dependencies but that's okay because it's statically typed, so you can't actually pass a, uh, an object from version A uh, into something that expects it from version B because those types would be different even if they have the same name. I feel like we should get this right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Let's see. Transitive dependency. I don't know. The short answer is I certainly don't know <laughs> how the dependency management actually works. Uh, it looks like it. Like this is a little ambiguous, but uh, on the cargo FAQ, why do binaries have cargo.lock but not libraries? Right, but that's similar to why it's suggested that Ruby libraries don't have gemfile.lock. Yeah, uh, this is pre- precisely because a library should not be deterministically recompiled for all users of a library. Oh, right, because you're specifying the assembler. Right. 
if a library ends up being transitively used by several dependencies, it is likely that just a single copy of the library is desired. And? <laughs> if all libraries are checking their cover, then multiple, li- multiple copies of the library would be used and perhaps even a version conflict. Okay, so they can use multiple. So there is a, is a possibility of using multiple versions of the same library, it sounds but like. But there can also be a version conflict. So that right. is, uh, <laughs> I guess, both? Maybe by version conflict, they might not mean like cargo won't work, but that like you might leak something out that would be a version conflict in your code, like you would expect to be using version two. I don't know. We don't well, know. That's the thing is that. Ru- so, OK, actually, here's a here's a perfect example. Like libc is kind of sort of in the standard library, but not really. So uh, there's a crate called libc, which is literally nothing other than a git submodule to the Rust language itself. <laughs> that then says, go grab libc from the Rust language itself, because the Rust com- compiler is using libc. Uh, and I guess for whatever reason, the Rust compiler can't use crates. Mm-hmm. But the version in the compiler, I believe, is deprecated, and it's planned to be moved completely out. And what can end up happening is you can accidentally rely on the version of libc from the compiler, or a library can end up uh, doing that, and then you're using the version from the crate. And even though they're pointing at the exact same code and the value of the types are exactly the same, like in the in-memory representations are exactly the same, because they, ha- uh, because they are two different types, air quotes, defined in different places, air quotes, the compiler will say these are a mismatch. So you could never even, you, like Rust could theoretically, I, again, I don't feel like I've that conclusively said that it does do this, but it could theoretically <laughs> have it so that library A can depend on version 1 of library B, and library C can depend on version 2 of library B, but unlike Node, you would never be able to get into a situation where then you're taking an object returned by library A that was from version 1 of library B and pass that to version to library C, which is expecting that object from version 2 because those are different types. Okay. And that, that's what it's talking about when multiple... Co- that's probably what it's referring to when it says like why it would be undesirable for multiple copies to be used because even if it is the same version, like they're different... They're different uh, like Rust does name mangling, and so the, it, it, the compiler would then wouldn't see that as like, oh, these are the same types with the same in-memory representation. It would say these are two different types with the same in-memory representation because they'd have completely different names because it's, a, it's a, a, essentially a random token unless you've explicitly... And this is only for functions. You can explicitly mark something as no mangle, and the only reason you do that is if you're exporting it to C. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Sounds it's it's better than npm. We gotta we gotta dig on npm in this episode too. So that's good. <laughs> yes. Npm three just uh, came out. Or oh. beta maybe? I don't remember. I saw some issues that I opened I mean, on NPM. Isn't it zero point something? I don't think so. Isn't npm still zero point? Uh, npm three point oh point oh point three point oh point oh. I didn't even know NPM hit one. I Released. thought NPM was the thing that everybody laughed at because it's like the, this is why Semver sucks because then people... No, it's Node because Node's still zero point. NPM 3, version 3.0.0 is beta. I don't know why it's not 3.0.0 beta or something. I don't think they're... Maybe Semver doesn't allow them to put like beta in there. Anyway, <laughs> so NPM 3 is available and it does solve some of the issues that I, that I had originally with NPM, which is like... I wanted to. I wanted to opt into uh, what do they call dependency locking? Um, uh, freezing? No, something else. Sand, sand? Not sandboxing. I thought it was npm freeze. No. Okay. Oh man, hang on. Now I'm anyway, the thing up. that's the version of jump file lock that npm does. Right. Yeah. And it, but it's kind of like an optional thing, and you have to always remember right. to relock it every time you install a new dependency because 
there is no runtime support for it, so it's not like loading stuff up from this lock file, whatever their equivalent of the lock file is. Right, it just vendors everything. Right, it just vendors everything. So if you forget that, like, oh, I'm supposed to be using this lock file convention, and you just install some libraries, then it's going to work for you. But when you go to deploy, it's going to deploy from that manifest. It's essentially just a manifest. Right. It's going to deploy from that manifest and not have your packages. So does it now just automatically use the lock file if it exists? Supposedly, that was the issue that I had opened, was like, hey, this should automatically do this. And that issue got closed. But I no longer care about I'm no longer on a project where I'm using NPM. So, um, <laughs> hello, mom, hang up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, don't touch numbers. Skype will keep at you. Um, why does that? Why is that even a function? Uh, like functionality that Skype has? I don't know. Anyway, so yeah, they supposedly fixed that, but I no longer care because I'm no longer using NPM. So I will care That's when good. I get back to using it. But anyway, all right. I, I don't know. That was interesting. We took a lot of different directions there. The standard yeah. library stuff was fun. Uh, we've uh, been going for a while. You got anything else? Yeah. I don't know. Rust is cool still. People should still check it out. Yeah, I mean, after our, our after our episode, I did go home and like start working through the Rust language book. I think it's just called the Rust book or something like that that Steve Klabnik yeah, writes. It's Rust on, programming language. Right, it's on rustlang.org. And I started working through that, and I was like, this is great. When am I going to, like, I don't have a chance to do this. But there has sure. been some talk, like, about, oh, there's a project here. It's in, it could be, like, C. It could be Rust. And I was like, I, if, like, somebody here, like, if you were going to do that Rust project, if I could glom onto that as, like, an apprentice developer in Rust or whatever, I'd be like, yeah, let's do that. Well, we're all apprentice developers in Rust. Hey, but, you know, shh. Uh, <laughs> no, it, you know, one thing that really strikes me is a lot of people hear about the, the borrow checker and they're like, oh, this must be, like, really complicated and really terrible and you have to think about it all the time. But do, did you get the, did you feel like you never actually felt like you had to think about it until you're in a situation where it's like, maybe I should think about who owns this stuff because now I'm doing a complicated or dangerous thing. I haven't gotten to doing complicated and dangerous things yet. So, okay, like, fair enough. as I'm writing the code, I'm like, this is fine. This is just code. Uh, but there's, okay, but there's, parts I didn't, there's parts of it I didn't like and parts of it that were just completely for it. Like, I, I, like the pattern matching stuff, I really prefer... It at the function level, which I think sure. is if I were writing if I were writing something that was not directly like type this thing from this book, I probably would keep the pattern matching. Like it wouldn't be built into the function syntax, but the entire function would be pattern matching, right? Well, and I think that's the only argument for not. Well, I, I think it's also just easier for the compiler because unle, like unless you enforce that all of the definition declarations of the function have to be right next to each other, it can get a little funky for from a compilation. Right. Like, there's no reason that you couldn't have, like, all but one pattern in a Haskell file, like, at the top of the file, and then, like, the rest of your module, and then at the bottom, you're like, oh, and one extra case, which is terrible, but... <laughs> but, the, yeah, and then I guess the only other argument for non-function level pattern matching is is exactly what you said, is that you don't have to do it at the function level. Right. Even though you probably... I think, I think I would just, yeah, I think I would just prefer to do that. But the examples I was working through did not do that, and I was like, what's happening here? So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, more Rust. I would like to do some more. You should find an excuse to do more Rust somehow. At like a, we just need to get more C type projects, and then be like, we're no, gonna actually do this. Or like Rust. as project nights, or oh. if we're just gonna do a JSON API, I think Rust could be really right. good for that. I know here, like Blake is interested in it. The problem is like, we have to have people that have at least written C professionally before, right? So they kind of like understand. I don't think so. You don't think so? No. Okay. I mean, I mean, I think Rust is like that. There's a reason that Rust is known as like. A, the language that kind of sort of can replace C, but also seems to be really popular with Rubyists. True. Go also seems popular with Rubyists, so who knows? Yeah. Talk about um, calling a function, checking the error, calling a function, checking the error, calling a function, checking oh, the yeah. error. Uh, 
Anyway, okay, we should wrap up. It's yeah, let's late. wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 27. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly appreciated. If you're not the iTunes reviewing type, you can also just tell three of your friends about what a great podcast this is. Ooh. If you'd like to leave us feedback, you can find us on Twitter at at underscore bike shed. You can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or you can just leave us a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to The Bike Shed. Uh, an important reminder that we're off next week for our summer summit to give our producer a break so he doesn't have to produce podcasts all week while we're out meeting our coworkers and mingling. So we'll see you in a couple weeks. Two, specifically. I guess that is a couple by definition. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs>